So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, your one-stop shop for all things environment in this country. C-A-N-A-D-A. That was going like that. That went more cheerleader than I was anticipating. C-A-N-A-D-A. Isn't there a Rafi song, C-A-N-A-D-A? I think you're thinking of B-A-N-A-N-A-S. C-I-U-T 89.5 FM or your local community radio station. My given name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren. I keep trying to come up with something funny to say, and I can't come up with anything funny to say. The only thing that came to mind was like, bleep bloop. Bleep bloop, you come from the Pleiadian star cluster. Oh my god, wait, is that the whole, like, speaking of conspiracy theories? Is that the whole idea that there are five-dimensional beings that control the planet? The Pleiadians? They are one of an infinite number of... Different dimensional beings influencing this planetary sphere on every level imaginable. I'm glad that I'm glad that the rest of the show is going to be so fact based after this this opening. One of those levels being the Earth plane. When we shift into news mode, I promise it is primarily fact based. <laughs> and yet we are here in this third third density illusion to learn the role and the practice of faith. So hop in and learn to love. Amidst a major drought, China has begun cloud seeding in order to bring more water to the Yangtze River. They need more water to flow through the river's Three Gorges Dam to fix power shortages. International supply chains have been disrupted from lack of electricity. The Yangtze is the world's third largest river, and it has been drying throughout August and into September. China has also been enduring wildfires and crop failures from their longest and most intense heat wave on record that has lasted for months. Europe has been facing its worst drought in 500 years. Summer crop yields of grain maize, soybean, and sunflowers have dropped well below the five-year average. Drought has made water no longer affordable for millions of people in the Horn of Africa. The drought is inching closer to Ontario, with Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island now in drought, and 40% of Massachusetts and all of Rhode Island under extreme drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. There have also been catastrophic floods in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and New Mexico. This bunch of news stories is actually perfectly timed, because our interview this week is with Dr. Jay Familietti, who is the professor of hydrology with the University of Saskatchewan and the host of the podcast, What About Water?, which the fourth season comes out very soon. So keep an eye out for it. And in the interview, I must say it's really fun talking to a professor because you get to ask all the questions you're just curious about and trust that they, you know, like this is someone who lives in this world and also tries to also you know communicate it out with the public. So it's he has both the ability to communicate and also a pretty broad range of information to pull from. And so in the interview, I I literally a couple times I'm just like, what about this thing? And as you'll hear in the interview, things aren't great with the world of water. This is mostly a climate show now, despite our saying all things environment off the top. I think we're probably an 80% climate-related uh show. And so it was interesting to talk about someone who comes at, you know, the world uh, and the problems that exist in it from a, such a different perspective. And yet the 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 story that is weaved from uh, our conversation is one that really mimics the climate change uh, conversation, which is one that is, well, we have 
we are in unprecedented territory, as some of the notes that you know you just read in the news, Dave, uh, show, and then also the level of water that we are pulling out of the ground and losing to the oceans, quite literally. But also, we are now pulling out what he calls in the interview fossil water, which is basically water that has been underground for you know, in geologic time. So thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Because we're just digging deeper because we need more? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, water that's deeper down or that would be the bottom of the water where that, you know, we'd be normally playing off the top of the aquifer or things like that. And, you know, that directly relates to, you know, what we're doing with oil, pulling the stuff out that's been been around for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And now we're bringing it back into the atmosphere and, with water, interestingly, most of it ends up in the in the oceans, and with obviously carbon that we're burning goes up in the atmosphere. But both, as a combination, you know, create some really terrifying scenarios. And talking to, you know, a professor of hydrology about this, you end up in this example where you know you in those news stories you wrote, noted a a few stories that are about not enough water, these significant droughts that are happening, and there are more that that are just mentioned. You know, California is having a huge drought. Um, you know, there's the, yeah, there's droughts all over. And then the other flip side is way too much water, you know, as you mentioned in the catastrophic floods, uh, obviously Pakistan remains the place that is most heavily hit right now and need desperate need of support. So if you can, you know, donate to them, please do because the Canadian government, as I mentioned last week, still not doing a lot. So we should step up as an international community that, that requires some solidarity there. But it was interesting to hear him talk and see the direct connections between talking to people who are really as vested in climate, right? It's hearing people who have this holistic understanding of how things normally are and where things are. And just at the very end, you'll notice him hint with one sentence about, you know, some of these cities facing uh, water Armageddon. And that phrase, which it just sort of lays in there, has stuck with me ever since. And so lest us not just spend our time terrifying you about climate change to briefly remind you water also not doing great and we didn't even get into the conversation about plastics but anyways to you lauren yeah i'm really keen to to hear this interview that you have today um because yeah it is funny it didn't sort of occur to me until you literally just said it a second ago but we are in fact an environment podcast that just like (laughs) all we ever talk about is climate because it's, it's the big magnifier. And in this case, it, it, it's also the big magnifier, right? Like you can't talk about water issues and water justice issues as though they're in any way separate from and not influenced by, um, by, by, by climate change, because um, us digging into these deep geo, what did you call them? Fossil water, like geological yeah. reserves of water, um, because our water consumption has just gone through the roof. And when I say are, I mean, <laughs> the billionaire class to 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 keep their their golf courses afloat and the amount of um product that we produce anyway so we're using a ton of water which would be an issue regardless of the climate crisis but it's it's sort of magnified by the fact that we are in this period of time where it's hot and it's not getting any cooler where it also at this moment where um glaciers are melting so we're losing those freshwater reserves oceans are rising so you're getting horrific horrific levels of flooding like you mentioned in pakistan i believe if 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 the news that I recently read is correct, something like 33 million people have been displaced, which if you are a listener based in so-called Canada, where again, the three of us are based, that's that's virtually the entire population of the country. It's one million shy of the population of, 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 of so-called Canada. So like it's <laughs> the degree to which that is a problem, like cannot be understated. And the fact that we are hitting all of these sort of Tipping points isn't the right word because I'm not referring to feedback loops, but like we're sort of we're hitting these markers for ecological and climate disaster like centuries earlier than we were supposed to be and decades earlier in some cases. Like it's um, obviously like, I don't know, for the longest time we were really worried about like, oh, well, like you don't want to be a doomsayer because that that causes people to have like such crippling climate anxiety and climate grief that they don't want to take action. And it's like it. I'm sorry, the, the concept of doomsaying and that being a faux pas is out the window. The bottom line is it's the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in. And if we don't take drastic, meaningful action, we're we're dooming millions to death. Oops, sorry, had to be said. And 
there are you know ways out of this, but I truly think that I saw a tweet the other day that the closer you are to people who study the science, the more depressed you get, and the closer you are to people who are like working on solutions, the more uh, optimistic you get, and that both of those things can be true. Like we can be both working towards solutions that are exciting and also understanding just how deep trouble we are actually in. Yeah, well, yeah, and and like they have to be both both true like that's the thing is that like unfortunately it's like I don't know I'm sure a lot of our listenership have been have experienced like depression and anxiety at various stages in your life but like unfortunately you have to continue to get up in the morning and you have to continue to make your bed and you have to continue to feed yourself and this is the equivalent of that you have to we have to as a as a civilization continue to get out of bed and feed ourselves and figure out a way to make it through and try to make it better the next day because really the there is no alternative the alternative is 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 planetary annihilation and that's not actually a viable option for anyone the unfortunate well the unfortunate thing this is all unfortunate but but the thing that is really hard to come to terms with as well is the fact that like again we know because all of this ultimately just comes down to like class warfare is that like yeah there will always be people who can afford to have their to have like desalinated water and there will always be people who can afford to abandon their their cliffside mansion and move inland and there will always be people that once it comes time to start exporting water from the great lakes will be able to afford that exported water from the great lakes and it will be the rest of us left to 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 the expectation will be that we fight amongst each other for the scraps and that again is not a viable option you we have to like as again I say this is like a middle class white woman but like those of us who aren't billionaires have to act in class and racial solidarity in order to make sure that we're not just like I don't know that we don't revert back to a medieval peasantry for all intents and purposes yeah because like not a vibe like I love linen as much as the next woman I'm wearing it right now but (laughs) I can't wear that in winter I'm too cold no, and I and I think that one thing I learned before we go to the next news uh, section is that we're very bad at getting water back to places. Like we 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 like once you pull water out of say the Great Lakes and ship it somewhere else, there's not an easy way to make sure that water ends up back in the Great Lakes. At that point, you are really just displacing where water is in the water table, and we've we've already begun doing this in some significant ways due to agriculture, but like. You can't just sell water, you know, half a country away and presume that water will stay because it will it will join the other water table wherever you sent it and will not end up back in the Great Lakes. And so messing with the water table at your own peril, do not recommend. Perhaps we should go to a music break and then come back to the news. Yeah, let's listen to a couple of minutes of sweet, sweet tunes to lull your anxious mind into a wonderful rhythm of appreciation of the beauty of this earth. Turn with the Green Majority. Doing climate news. Politico. All right, so Politico published an article critical of the Inflation Reduction Act, reading, quote, Environmental justice advocates say that Democrats chose to take black, Hispanic, and indigenous voters for granted, and well-connected environmental groups cut them out of the political process. Dallas Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network is quoting the article as saying, quote, We've been sold out for this vague notion of compromise. Certain groups of people, communities, voices are seen as sacrifice zones for a quote-unquote greater good. The article goes on to say, quote, Environmental justice advocates were disheartened that a bulk of the Inflation Reduction Act's $700-plus billion will flow to corporations or support tax credits for purchasing electric vehicles, which remain out of reach for many people. Of course, later in the article, they actually quoted some of these environmental justice advocates they're talking about is being like, actually, the bill is not the bills. The bills a starting point will build from it or whatever. Anyway, but that's the point. And also, the U.S. spent thirty-nine million dollars on a tree planting program in Haiti after those uh, there was the hurricane wiped out a bunch of trees. 
so U.S. U.S. aid spent $39 million on this program that it now estimates will have zero impact in the long run, since almost all of the trees planted are being consumed by roaming cattle. Uh, the program was only five years and did not have enough time to establish itself. The cattle thing is important because they were trying to, this is classic, like, we're going to go in and get the local population to do something better for themselves, right? But they didn't take into consideration anything beyond sort of their own expertise, nor did they give themselves enough time to establish anything. So they're just going to have zero impact. Right. I I feel like I, I, both these stories, I think, are examples of the ways that sort of th- neoliberal solutions are never going to really solve the problem. You know, a top-down $39 million for tree planting isn't going to solve any problems. And the Inflation Reduction Act, while, you know, being praised across the board from sort of clean energy people and will undeniably reduce emissions, it is, the critiques that you've read are really the the ones that I think are, are left pretty strongly here, and we see it across the world. Whenever you see tax credits or subsidization of EV vehicles, that's not envisioning a different world. It's presuming that we can sort of slightly tweak our current world and be okay. And that is just not a reality, right? We, we cannot live in a world where we drive as much as we do, but just in electric vehicles. And so the idea that that's the solution here, and again, part of this is because they weren't going to pass other things. And so there is it is a starting point that must be built on but the transformational stuff is the stuff that i'm really that we, that i think you have to look for if you want to feel really invested in these changes it's sort of why when we've talked about the trudeau government i was like i'm not going to believe the trudeau government cares about climate change as much as they say they do until they invest in a national bus service because that's the kind of thing that actually changes how people move around the space it gives them new opportunities and it is an investment in changing people's lives and behaviors rather than almost everything in this um, option is basically being like, hey, these are, you know, energy can come cheaper now from renewables, which is true. So let's support them and get and you know, and, and save people money while also wiping out coal and natural gas. That's good news, but that's not changing the system. You know, neither are neither is electric vehicles. And again, good that they're better than fossil fuels, but we, but if they had included in that, included, I don't know, a high-speed rail across uh, parts of the states that could really use that, then we're really talking about transformative change or, you know, investing in suburbs to change how they can be still less car dependent. These are all these other things that would be much more focused on communities and people and how they live their lives rather than most of this money is going to go to, you know, giving companies cheaper ways to either build uh, solar panels or electric vehicles. And emissions reductions are there, but it's really still stuck in the same mindset that has got us into this problem. No, 100%. Or like, similarly, it's really hard for me to take a government seriously when they say they care about, I don't know, aquatic ecosystem integrity. And they take that seriously because like, look at their, I don't know, kind of half-assed, like, anti-ocean plastics program meanwhile they're meanwhile they're they're like approving deep deep water drilling projects and like refusing to allow indigenous peoples to run like sustainable fisheries based on traditional practices and like understandings of 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 those aquatic ecosystems so i know exactly they're they're piecemeal um incrementalist solutions when like people are dying as a result of like, like we talked about before the music break, a lack of access to water or way too freaking much water, depending on where you are in the world at any given moment. Right. And finishing off with these news stories, uh, five new wind farms have been announced in Nova Scotia, <clears throat> whose output uh, will total 12% of the popula- of the province's current electricity consumption. Canada has agreed to sell green hydrogen and possibly blue hydrogen to Germany, as Germany's energy supply is incredibly vulnerable to Russian decisions about its exports of oil and gas. The Sibignagati First Nation is being harassed by the DFO over lobster fishing, still, uh, which, according to Canadian law, is within their treaty-ratified rights. 
and two years after two open net salmon farms were closed in northwest BC. Wild salmon, both pink and sockeye, have bounced back in huge numbers. So they're catching a lot of wild salmon up there right now. Well, that's like one nice story. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. I didn't realize there was one more. Are we going to be depressed again? I was just going to mention there's a climate rally. Is it only in Toronto? Yeah. There's a climate rally on Sunday, September 11th, about a lawsuit against the Ford government. Yeah, it, it, we talk, covered it on the show a couple, I mean, at least a year ago. It, youth are suing the Ford government for not doing enough about climate change, and EcoJustice is holding a rally in support of them on September 11th. And now we'll go to another music break and come back with Stefan's interview with Professor... Jay Familietti. Jay Familietti. Familietti. Jay Familietti. Yeah. About uh, water. Yeah. What about water? What about it? Podcast. Season four. Coming soon. What's his position? He's a professor of hydrology with the University of Saskatchewan. Hydrology. Yeah. He must know what he's talking about. Oh, he does. We begin to merge into a very pure expression of infinite intelligence in form. We begin to merge into a very pure expression of the very depths of cosmos, the very depths of creation. We're going very deep into the essence of creation itself. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am back, as noted earlier on the show, with Dr. Jay Familetti, the professor of hydrology with the University of Saskatchewan and host of the podcast, What About Water? Thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much, Stefan. So by a way of introduction, perhaps you can tell our listeners how you first got interested and involved in water even more generally. Obviously, you've devoted a significant portion of your life to it. So you know what, what started that spark? I think a lot of it had to do with my upbringing as a kid, spent a lot of time outdoors. And this was sort of like the early conservation movement. We're talking about the 60s and the, and the 70s. So, you know, it just really resonated with me. And I think it really took hold then that I went to college and, and thought I was going to be a veterinarian, but ended up majoring in, in geology and really, really loved it. And it just sort of then became more focused on water. And here I am. That's that's really interesting. What is the connection between, you know, geology, I think of rocks. So what, what is the connection from geology into water? How does that work? Sure. Well, geology, sure. It's strict definition is, you know, rocks and I don't know, plate tectonics and how mountains form and erosion and, and that kind of stuff. But really it's more broadly earth science. And when you start looking at the earth as a whole, you realize that water has a big central role that it, it plays in linking the different parts of the earth system. So specifically the land, the ocean, the atmosphere, the ice sheets together. It's one of the major cycles along with like the carbon cycle that we hear so much about and energy cycle. Uh, so yeah, it's just more broader perspective. Right. That makes sense. And then, so you sort of all saw geology and got really interested in, in water specifically, and that carried on through your, your master's and PhD work. And then your I presume you yeah, like. just, you know, you know how uh, graduate school can be like that. You get more and more focused. I did take a hydrogeology class my senior year in college. I was at Tufts University in, in uh, outside Boston. And we had a visiting professor who taught a hydrogeology class that term. And it was, it was great. Really, really liked it. And I actually started off graduate school in, in geophysics, exploring the shallow crust and let's just say I got a little bit more focused on the very shallow crust and the water environment. I ended up doing a master's in hydrology and a PhD in, in hydrology as well. Right. Wow. And so for those who might not know, what is involved in studying hydrology? Sure. Yeah. A lot. But hydrology, broadly defined, is the study of how water moves over and through the landscape. And all the interactions that happen along the way, so the physical, the chemical, the biological interactions. So so that's hydrology. And I guess people think of hydrology as being really more strictly on the sort of physical natural science side, whereas these days, I think 
people are using a broader term called water scientist, which also includes like this, the social side, the economic side. So a more holistic view of, of all the different ways that, that water touches our lives. Right. And, and that sort of feels, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that overarching thought process about how all of the ways that water touches our lives is what you're bringing to this podcast. What about water? I looked through some of your you know previous interviews and you're, it's a really broad range. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what inspired the podcast and what you're trying to do with it. So the podcast was really inspired, like a lot of my work these days. So you know, there's a heavy science communication awareness raising component, and that's driven driven by the research, which you know hopefully we can talk about a little bit. But you know, in brief, I work with satellites, and and we can see very clearly now with satellites the the different places around the world that are losing water, and then we can do the research to figure out why they're losing or gaining or gaining water. And I just think my time. You know, especially when I was in California, I lived in California for 18 years and the water situation there is so intense and there's a lot of water scarcity as you know, you know about from reading the news and seeing what's happening in the Southwestern U.S. I just felt like there was not a lot of, you know, we want our decision-making to be science-driven and I wasn't seeing a lot of that happening. And here I was, you know, sitting on top of all this like really important data and this state-of-the-art research showed very clearly what was going on. And so that sort of led to more broadly about science communication, and that could be media, being responsive to media interviews, a lot of writing, a lot of opinion pieces, a lot of blog writing, really trying to get the message up. And the, the podcast was basically an extension of that. Once I moved up here to USASC, had the resources and you know, have, a great, have a great team. And you know it just kind of happened organically. We were doing some stuff with film. We were planned a huge film festival for like, you know, June, 2020. So like right there in the crosshairs of COVID and it never happened. We did a lot of stuff online, including short two minute film competitions, but, but this, the podcast kind of grew, grew from there. Right. That makes sense. So I'm going to divert us for a second because you said something that makes me interested. And also I find that whenever I have a real expert on, I, I want to ask them these questions that that I would want to know if I could get a chance to talk to someone like yourself. So, you know, one of the major ways people think about climate change, you know, is this one phrase, you know, water in all the wrong places, right? There's too little water one, some places too much in other places. And we're seeing that, I think, really starkly right now, how many floods have been occurred the last little bit and how much, and yet while other places have droughts. And so from your research and from your sort of more holistic understanding, where are we at with that? Like how far down the road are we in terms of some of these some of these changes happening? And yeah, like how's water doing right now is, is sort of my question, which is a very sort of open-ended yeah. question, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know? You know, interesting you should ask, Stefan, because I just, prior to this conversation, I had a research meeting with one of my research scientists and we were looking at the latest data and so the answer is uh, water's not not doing well globally. I work more on the quantity side and how availability is changing, and and I'll talk about that in a second. Of course, on the water quality side, yeah, so much of our rivers and uh, so many of our rivers are polluted and our groundwater is contaminated. But on the scarcity side, um, you know, globally, the land is actually losing water, and then spatially. So let me just drill down to that a little bit. So we look at all the continents. We have satellites now that we can use, a particular satellite mission called GRACE, which stands for NASA Satellite Mission, called GRACE, which stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. So we can look at multiple scales from the scale of a river basin, like the Saskatchewan River Basin, to you know the entire globe, all of the continents. When we look at all of the continents, um, to pull off the ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica, they're kind of their own thing. And we know that that ice is melting away. When we look at the rest of the continents, now it's pretty clear that, you know, globally, we're losing water. And so spatially, then, that, that has very well-defined patterns of the mid-latitudes, the places that are already dry, getting drier because of warmer temperatures, more evaporation, less, less rainfall. The low latitudes, like the tropics actually getting wetter. And for a long time, we were saying that the high latitudes, we're seeing that the high latitudes were looking like they were getting wetter as well. 
But over the past five years, there's been this flip, and this is just important for you know for Canada and for Northern Eurasia, that it's actually now losing water, and that's because of melting permafrost, melting snow, melting glaciers. So and, you know, sprinkled on top of that broad pattern are all these hot spots for groundwater depletion from the world's major aquifers, and that's mainly because you know we use groundwater, which is the water stored underground in these aquifers, which are rock units, layers of rock that store store water, like an oil reservoir, except they, they hold water. And we use a lot of that water for agriculture, for irrigation, to, to drive our food production. And over half of them are running out of water. So it's a, a pretty dire situation. We're seeing it on the news. We're seeing it in the southwestern U.S. with the Colorado River Basin. And we see a lot of news about like Paul and like Mead and all the cutbacks that are happening. They'll have huge implications globally because of all the food production that happens there, certainly in North America. But also, you know, the kind of sleeper is the drought and the in the groundwater overdraft, the excessive groundwater use that's happening across Europe, which took a lot of people by surprise, even even myself. So, you know, that's a long answer to your question. Water's not doing well. I mean, that's exactly the kind of answer I was I was hoping for. So, so thank you so much. Well, I, I wish I, I wish we it were it that way. I wish I could say water's doing great, and I hate to be that messenger. But again, that's part of my job is I see the data and I need to share it with people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I guess I should clarify. I'm not saying that's the answer I was hoping for from a standpoint of like I'm loving that we're water's not doing great, but more so that <laughs> the level of detail was was appreciated. And to just to ensure I understand. When you say that the we are losing water on land, I presume that is that water is ending up in the oceans, or is it in the atmosphere? It is a little bit in the atmosphere. The atmosphere actually can't store much water, so most of the storage of water happens in you know on land. Of course, the oceans and the ice sheets—that's where that's where all the water is. Atmosphere, of course, that water in the atmosphere is super important, right? Because that's what generates rainfall and. And the atmosphere can hold more moisture because it's getting warmer. And that's one of the reasons why we're having more intense storms. But in terms of absolute amounts of water, it's like all in the ocean, all on land, all in the all of the ice sheets. So yeah, it's ending up contributing to sea level rise. That's another thing people don't think about when we're thinking about the the drivers of sea level rise. Most of us think about the ice sheets. But it's way more than the ice sheets. It's the ice sheets. It's the glaciers. And by ice sheets, I mean Greenland and Antarctica. It's the glaciers that are in the mountains on the continents, like those in Alaska, British Columbia, Alberta. And it's the water that we're pulling out of our aquifers and pulling out of, you know, basically in a closed off part of the water cycle, pulling it out. It's very analogous to pulling fossil carbon out. And burning it up and injecting injecting in the atmosphere, we're pulling out this literally fossil groundwater from these aquifers. We pump it, we use it to irrigate, and a lot of it runs off and ends up runs off the land and and ends up contributing to sea level rise. When you say fossil groundwater, should I take that to mean that this is like water that has not been disturbed for thousands and thousands of years? Exactly right, and so that's where we're at. So, you know, just think about us as as humans. We're going to take advantage of the resources that are that are easiest, right, and most accessible. So that's why like we started with the it's just humanity in general, right? If there's surface water available and rivers and streams and you know, we started building reservoirs, we're gonna use that. It's uh, if you live in a climate that's humid, then it's renewable and it's easy to access. Sometimes you're away from a river and, you know, you dig a well. And if you live in a humid climate, it's close to the surface. But, you know, sometimes those aquifers are pretty deep. And it may be because you've exhausted the stuff that's closer to the surface and there's deeper layers that still have water. Or it may just be the hydrogeology, meaning like just the, the physical geology, the layers are just, that's just the way the geology is. And it's, it's pretty deep. And by deep, we could be talking about thousands of feet. and so. That's the kind of stuff when you get that deep, that implies a, like a, a, an older age, that the, you know, the rocks are older, that when they were laid down millions of years ago, 
or since that time, you know, there's just been millions or hundreds of thousands of years to actually fill up those rock units with water. So yeah, we're not talking about human timescales. We're talking about water that was in place a long time ago, hundreds of thousands of millions of years ago, and that we're accessing now and, you know, been using up over the course of the past century. So, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years to to put it into place and, you know, a century to, to burn through it. Um, so the real analogies, right, to uh, to oil. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. It's, say except on the value, except on the value side, right? And yes. that's why uh, it gets abused and, and poorly managed. Right, yeah. And I think that even the way that's described in terms of climate change, you know, like our climate's been stable for this amount of time and these things have been slowly going in the last 200 years, you know, emissions spiked and also water use spikes pretty much simultaneously. So your podcast definitely includes some concerns about, about solutions and other stuff that people are working on. And I want to get to your new seasons coming out soon. But before I do that, I'm curious if there are any episodes or any conversations you had in the last two that still stick with you, that you're like, these are some thoughts or some important points that I really yeah. sit with me that I feel like people should should know about. Yeah, there's there's three, actually. One is with Steve Neerum, and it was on this question of sea level rise, where we kind of talked about, so Steve is a scientist like myself. Like myself, he's worked at NASA. He is focused on, uses some of the same satellites, but he's more focused on the ocean and, and sea level rise, whereas I'm more focused on the land, but also concerned about sea level rise. So that's our, that's our intersection. And just having a conversation with Steve and understanding how much commitment we have to sea level rise, meaning like, you know, what's the temperature? Where's the temperature going? What does that mean in terms of ice melt? These are things that even if we stopped emitting carbon today, this would still happen. And so, you know, a meter sea level rise by the end of the 21st century, most of us are not really planning for that. And it could be more. So that to me was a real eye opener, even though I'm in the business just to have that conversation. And, you know, really get updates from a sea level rise expert was a real eye opener. The other two that I liked quite a bit were my conversation with Jeff Sachs, who is at Columbia University. Some people call him the most famous, you know, living economist. And he um, is really considered the founder, you know, the godfather, the grandfather of the sustainable development goals. So I had a great conversation with him. What I loved about that conversation was that, you know, he doesn't doesn't need to play politics and just say, like, we're doing a terrible job and here's all the ways that we can improve. And he took a lot of care to keep bringing it back to water. So I really, really appreciated that. And the third one was with Mindy Luber from the nonprofit series. And Mindy works a lot on financial innovations with series. It's C-E-R-E-S. And series is a sustainability nonprofit that is working with investors, tries to inform investors about things related to sustainability, and in this case, water, to get investors to you know work with companies to do the right thing. In this case, it would be corporate water stewardship. And so, you know, another conversation kind of no holds barred, like she just said, hey, if these companies are not planning for a future that involves changing water availability, and they're not ready to disclose transparently their water use, and they're just going to get left behind because that's the way the world's going. So those to me were, I mean, there's been a lot of good ones, but but those really stand out. Awesome. And I should clarify for our listeners, you are actually entering season four. So you have three seasons that people would go back and enjoy. Right. So in season four, are there any ones that you're that excited to, for people to hear? Sure. So, you know, we started off, thinking that the focus would be on on technology and it has been but you know we're also opportunistic and so i just came back from world water week in stockholm where we recorded a couple of of episodes and one was with kate lamb from the the cdp cdp used to stand for carbon disclosure project and now now it's just cdp cdp is really writing and developing frameworks for reporting first it was for carbon for industry reporting 
on carbon and, you know, net zero carbon, and now they're focusing on water. And so that was a great conversation that I hope people will listen to because, you know, this is the way that the world is going. We're, we're not going to move the needle on global war security without deep involvement and engagement with industry because industry uses 80% of the water. It's really the food, the food industry that's using most of the water. And so we're not, you know, we're not saving any water unless we're, we're working with, uh, with industry. And so working with CDP allows us to put together a reporting framework that makes it easy for industry to do this transparent reporting. So that one I think is, is pretty exciting. I did another one, a little bit more technology also at Stockholm with a new kind of a software platform called Open ET, where ET stands for evapotranspiration, which is the right water loss from, from plants and from the surface into, into the atmosphere. And so OpenET is a platform that uses a lot of satellite data and computer models to compute evapotranspiration at very high resolution. Right now, they're focused on the Western U.S. By high resolution, I think it's 30 meters or something. And so the Western, Western states of the United States. The reason that's important is that it's really hard to measure evapotranspiration. But in terms of understanding your water budget, if you're doing water accounting, if you're doing any kind of water management, evapotranspiration is considered a loss. So you need to measure it and then you need to try to minimize it. Whatever you can do to minimize evaporation is going to help you save water. So those are a couple that I'm really looking forward to. Cool. Those are, yeah. I love that that's like so deep in the world of water, right? Like there's yes, things that's pretty <laughs> Yeah, no, like, like no one, people outside of this are not knowing about evapotransportation, but it's... Uh, no, that's right. But it's like so important. And this, again, the, you know, step that's part of the job is to kind of like illuminate some of these issues and things that we don't think about. Uh, you know, ET, or we abbreviate evapotranspiration, we call it ET in the business. But, you know, like groundwater, it's invisible. I mean, it's invisible because it's a gas. You're vaporizing water and, you know, you don't see it. And just like groundwater, you don't see it because it's underground. And so those are the kind of parts of the water cycle that are so important, but really easy to ignore because they're literally like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's what I love about the the explosion of podcasts that are out there and in this show that that I get the chance to do, which is the opportunity to dive into these things like three or four layers deep that normal media wouldn't cover, right? Like normal media sure. is trying to find the next thing. And so they might have someone on for like three minutes to talk about this, but, you know, to have the time and space to really get in and learn something new is I think really unique. And so given that you've now done this, you know, you've done these interviews for their season four, as well as previously, I'm curious if there are any you know, solutions or new ideas that you really feel like people need to know about? Is there something that you're like, more people should know about this because it is either could do great things or is doing great things? Yeah, there's there's a lot. I'll, I'll go to my, my standbys. And we had one episode on sewage recycling, which sounds terrible, but it is absolutely amazing. We talked with Mike Marcus at the Orange County Water District, and Mike started up something called the Groundwater Replenishment System, which takes sewage from the Orange County area, which is where I, where I used to live around 2001 through 2014. And they take sewage and they process it, and they, they literally process the crap out of it and produce ultra, ultra pure water that's either used to recharge the groundwater or or used to as a barrier against seawater intrusion, which is something that happens in groundwater systems that are close to the ocean. The seawater could seep in and then sort of contaminate the, the groundwater with, with seawater. So people are really freaked out by that, and they call it all kinds of things like toilet to tap and I don't know, other disgusting things. But a really, really important technology and really, really important in metropolitan regions. So I think that's that's really important. I think that not necessarily technology, but financial innovations, like the kind I talked about with Sirius, they're working with investors, I think are really, really important. On, but I want to return to this point about how industry, and particularly the food industry and agriculture, uses um, most of the water. And that's not intended to 
you know, I'm not intending to set up an us versus them or, or point the figure. It's just, you know, just doing the accounting and this is, this is how it is. And so we have to figure out how to produce food for a growing population, uh, but do it sustainably and do it for like forever, right? As long as there's humans, we need to be doing this. And so we can't just go drain all of our aquifers because, you know, we'll be screwed in like, you know, 20 years. So clearly we need to work on this. So there are a few innovations that I think are really, really important. Some of the big ones are just kind of emerging. It has to do with breeding more drought tolerant crops. So plants that can provide the same amount of nutrition and use less water. Plants that at the same time maybe have denser root systems so they can store more carbon. So those sorts of things are are really, really important. Then improvements in irrigation. There's a big, a lot of the world we use really inefficient irrigation called flood irrigation, which sounds which is just like it sounds. You build a berm around a field and you flood it. And that's super inefficient because of the thing we were just talking about. A lot of that water is evaporated rather than actually like used by the plants. So switching to, you know, these days, drip irrigation is is the way to go, which is, you know, it's almost like a hose that's with the, you know, little holes in it that can parse out small amounts of water at the at the sort of the stem of the plant or the, the trunk or if it's a if it's a tree. And then even deep drip irrigation, which is buried, it's very costly. But that is, you know, that's that's happening and that's out there. And my dream is so sort of the sci-fi version of irrigation is the optimal amount of water and nutrients delivered at the plant level. So you know sort of a dream of mine to pursue that in research, but ha- haven't quite haven't quite gotten there. I need like a major like investment, like a tech startup investment to do that, which is right. Not, uh, not, I don't think going to happen anytime soon. Right. That makes sense. Well, if anyone, if I happen to have any very rich listeners, please reach out to Jay. Please give me a call. <laughs> yeah. So I have one last question that is purely for my own interest. And if you don't have an answer, that is totally reasonable, but something I've thought about a bunch and I'm, yeah, I have the opportunity to learn something from you. So I'm going to ask that question and then we'll get to the questions of how people can listen to the podcast and things like that at the end. But the question that I've sort of stuck with me for a while now is the idea of how much water gets, say, shipped out of California in fruit. Because it's not just that you need it on the evaporation standpoint or, or irrigation, but like also like if we are shipping just huge amounts of fruit and vegetables and like that out of certain areas, to me, that is a huge transfer of water that would never get back. You know, like we're not sending that much of our own water back to California or Mexico or these places that are growing these things. And so to me, it seems like a very, very obvious, significant transfer of water, often from places that may not be as lush or have as much water, say California, to places like here in in Ontario, where we're surrounded by Great Lakes. Is there thought about how that's recouped? Is that true? Like, is that thinking that I'm even reasonable? And if so, is there any conversation about how one addresses that? It's a, it's a deep one. And yeah, people are thinking about it. It's called virtual water. It's the water that's embedded in fruit, vegetables, but it could also be our products, right? It's, you know, there's water in, in everything. So in genes that we, right, and, and anything, everything, cell phones, I mean, it, it takes water. So California is a great example because it does grow a lot of food and it really ships it all, you know, ships it all over the place, all over North America and even, you know, around the world. I was in the Middle East and saw rice from Sacramento. So, and rice is super water intensive. You know, another little statistic, about 75% of the water that California gets from the Colorado River Basin is used to grow alfalfa, which is hay, which is for, you know, for cows. And 75% of that is shipped overseas. A lot of it goes to China. So that you're literally taking water from the Colorado River Basin and right through the growing of alfalfa, sending it off to China and the, you know, the rest, the rest of the world. So yeah, that's happening. It's called virtual water. There's people who are looking at where the water goes, but not as many looking at how do we get it back. Someone actually just recently asked me about that. I think that's a really excellent question. I mean, it comes back through the water cycle. Of course, we don't destroy water, but 
how long, you know, with the changing water cycle, does it ever come back? It might come back. If it, you know, is it ever going to go back into those aquifers? No. So excellent question on that time scale. It's a real human modification of the water cycle. So one way to recoup it is to stop doing that, right? Is to kind of put limits on, and this is a really charged question because agriculture is business. And are we at the point in Canada and the United States and different countries around the world where we want to tell people what they can grow and what they can export? And there's a lot of money at stake. And I think that actually needs to be reined in. I mean, that's the way that it doesn't make sense for, you know, places like places that are really water stressed, like the Southwestern United States, to be either, you know, shipping that much food, growing food that's not going to be used within the country or within North America. It also doesn't make sense to knowingly sell water rights to other countries that are clearly just going to use, and Saudi Arabia is a great example, just going to use the property, use the water because of the water rights, same thing, grow alfalfa, grow some crop, send it back to their home country. That 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 has to stop. It can't. It's one thing if it's happening in a water-rich part of the country. It's another thing if it's happening in places like the southwestern U.S. that are like headed for the apocalypse. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. That it's been something I've been thinking about. So it's I really appreciate the the clarity. So for folks who want to follow and say catch your last three seasons or this new season, where can they find what about water? Well, you can go to whataboutwater.org and and that's a pathway to to our past episodes and and some extra information as well, but also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you you listen to your podcast. Awesome. And it's our tradition to give our guests sort of the last word of the show. So I'm going to thank you, and then I will throw back to you, and then you'll get to say whatever you want, speak to our listeners. But before I do that, thank you so much, Dr. Jay Familetti, a professor of hydrology with the University of Saskatchewan and the host of the podcast, What About Water? Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, any last words to our listeners? Well, thanks, Stefan. It's been a pleasure to be here. And yeah, for predominantly Canadian audience, just be aware that the water landscape is rapidly changing here in, in Canada. Canada is warming at you know, two times the global rate. The prairies at three times the global rate. Northern Canada, four times the global rate. With that is coming huge changes, shorter snow seasons, right? Warmer temperatures, which we know about. More variability in the extremes of flooding and drought. We've seen that play out across the country over the last couple of years. Be aware, you know, my message is to really, when you're voting, ask your politicians about their water platforms. Ask them what they are going to do about water. 